Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. My name's Erin and I'm a hypnobirthing and antenatal instructor, birth activist and all-round birth geek. In this podcast, I chat to experts in the field of pregnancy and birth, debunking myths around birth, diving into the research around maternity care and exploring what is it that means you're more likely to have a positive birthing experience. If you enjoy this podcast, do feel free to buy me a coffee and fund my caffeine habit. Link to my buy me a coffee page is in the podcast info. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Better Birth podcast. I am really excited to launch this new season of the podcast with the very wonderful Amity Reed. Um, Amity is a midwife and she's a journalist and she's an author and she's a feminist and activist. And I'm really, really excited to chat to you today um, because I've been following you on Instagram for quite a long time. Um, and I am really really excited to talk about some of the things that I think you're quite passionate about um so Amity do you want to introduce yourself a little bit for those people that are listening that don't know who you are yeah of course well thanks for having me on Erin I'm really excited to be here as well um yeah so I'm Amity as Erin said uh Amity Reed um bit about me I'm originally from the states but I've lived in the UK for about 20 years I've had both my children here my husband's British I've got two kids who are teenagers um, I've recently moved from London down to the South Coast in Shoreham-by-Sea, which I think I was actually listening to a previous episode of your podcast, and you live in Shoreham and Kent, don't you? I know. Everyone gets yeah. your town and my town confused. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, quick, quick, tiny little funny story about that. The first time we were driving down here to look at houses, my husband, not knowing there was a Shoreham-Kent, put just Shoreham in the sat-nav, and we only realized when we started seeing signs for like Seven Oaks <laughs> that we were like, this is not Sussex. We are in Kent. <laughs> and then we realized there's a Shoreham and in Kent and there's a Shoreham by Sea in West Sussex. Yeah. Anyway, yes, we both live in Shoreham at different places. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's me. I've just moved. So I'm in the midst of boxes and everything. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a longtime feminist um, background in journalism. And journalism is actually how I came to birth work and how I ended up becoming a midwife. So um, after I had my first child, I was working as a freelance journalist and I wrote an article about birth trauma. Uh, I was working for a feminist webzine at the time called The F Word. And I wrote an article about birth trauma and I went along to a march that was going on. This was in about 2010. Um, and my, um, my um, friend had told me about the protest. So it was for the Albany midwives. You know, they had a big protest when that shut down. It was a, a practice in London that was considered like a gold standard practice. And they caseloaded women and they had fantastic outcomes, even though it was quite like a deprived socioeconomic area. So I went along to that, met a lot of fantastic people, found out what doulas were, uh, talked to a lot of uh, really cool midwives and just became completely fascinated by that world. And because my introduction to it was quite political, it was about traumatic births and obstetric violence and midwifery practices being shut down and, and all of that. I think my, my introduction to birth work was quite political. Um, I was already a fairly political person, but this was the first time I had found out that this, there was this whole kind of birth world going on that was very, very political, very feminist, and it intrigued me. Um, and uh, after I had my second child at home, 
um, which was a great experience. Uh, both my births were NHS, um, were NHS births. Um, the home birth was fantastic. First one, not so much, but not necessarily traumatic. Um, but yeah, it, that's how I came to, to birth work. And I became a doula after having my two children. Did that for a few years and then thought, right, what next? I wanted to kind of get in there into the system and try to change things. You know, I had that very sort of rose tinted glasses, maybe idealistic. Uh, I knew it was going to be tough. No, don't get me wrong. I knew it was going to be hard work and that I wasn't going to be able to go in and, you know, change things overnight. But um, having seen midwives working really hard when I was on the ward with my clients and things, I knew, I knew, you know, knew somewhat what I was getting into. Um, but yeah, it was, it was harder than I thought it would be. I absolutely loved it. I practiced, I qualified in 2016 and I practiced in the NHS for about three years. Um, I left in 2019 and essentially left because of extreme burnout and was quite depressed. It had affected my mental health. I had never had any mental health issues before, um, to that extent, certainly not. And yeah, I completely burnt out and really, really hit a rock bottom and realized that the only way I would be able to recover from that was to leave the NHS entirely. So I had tried having time off a couple of times and then going back and every time it would just get worse. So I knew I had to leave. So I left in 2019 um, and not long after I left, so I went to work in abortion care after I left NHS midwifery, which I absolutely loved. Um, I was working in a clinic in South London um, so yeah, absolutely loved that work. But while I was working there, I was approached um, and asked to, well, I'd already started writing about some of my experiences while I was still in the NHS. Um, but it was after I'd already left it that I was approached by someone who asked me if I would be interested in writing a book about it because they had read a little bit of my stuff about midwifery and about the NHS. So yeah, I put together a book proposal and um, Pentern Martin, who you know published lots of books in this field, midwifery, birth, parenting and so on. Um, yeah, they published my book, which came out in October 2020, and it was called Overdue. And the subtitle was Birth, Burnout, and a Blueprint for a Better NHS. So it's essentially quite a, I always call it kind of like half memoir and half manifesto. So it's the, it's about my experience. So it is very personal to my life and my experience in the, um, in the NHS. But I also, especially in the latter half of the book, talk about how we might be able to make changes. Sorry, so that was a very long introduction. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's fascinating, and it's um, it's, yeah. it's great. You've you've kind of it's it really it's really interesting to see your journey, and and I suspect that the, the 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 different roles that you've had and different experiences that you've had from being a mother and from being a doula and from being a midwife, and then looking at things from a journalist's eyes and perspective as well gives you quite a unique perspective I think on on the whole maternity system um how how do you feel um things are uh developing how do you think things are playing out now from from seeing you know from from right when you went to that march to today going through covid and and you know your 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 experience as a midwife and then leaving the nhs do you think things are getting progressively worse do you think they there's there's light at the end of the tunnel what's what's your what's your view i think it's really fluctuated um i think during my training which was between 2013 and 2016 i really felt like things were starting to improve um, from how they had been when i was 
looking at the system from the outside in when I was a doula and when I was going through my own experiences of giving birth and I felt like things were starting to get better I felt like there was a, a more of a gathering momentum for people to try to change things to get continuity of carer in place um, and then clearly when better births came out so that was published in my final months of my midwifery training and I remember when it got published and they said they were actually going to do something about it I cried and was so happy that they were going to introduce continuity of care and that they were being told they have to do it and that this is really happening because there'd been so much talk about it in previous years, but this felt like, oh my gosh, something is really going to change. And I, so when I qualified, I was really excited to be part of this, you know, I thought it was going to be complete change. I thought we were really going to have this like landslide um, change. We were going to be able to do caseloading and continuity teams and that being a midwife was going to get back to its roots. And I was so excited about it, um, which is why the, the the sort of crisis that we're having now has seemed like kind of a, quite an abrupt drop from that. I mean, there were certainly problems all along the way, and I don't mean to suggest there were no problems in that time period that I was referring to, but it felt like there was more hope for things to change. Um, but I think ever since the introduction of a few different policies that's made the induction rates skyrocket in around 2017, the saving babies bundle and, and you know, many other things, but the, the rate of induction just noticeably skyrocketed and that just immediately put the workload just became immediately untenable. Um, you know, people being triaged and induced and it just became unbearable. Um, and I feel like, and then of course, when the pandemic happened, I'd already left the NHS by then, but I was still working in healthcare and abortion. And yeah, it undoubtedly had a huge impact, but things were already, I think, on their way downhill anyway. And then now we're at this point today in 2022, where it's at not just a crisis, but an emergency point. And I'm genuinely worried Every day when I sit down and open my phone at breakfast and look at the headlines, I'm just waiting for the day when, you know, women, more women have died than already have, when more midwives are killing themselves because they can't take it anymore, because we know that the rate of healthcare workers um, ending their own lives is much higher than the, the general population. And we know that women are already having really traumatic births, um, you know, at least a third of women, if not more, that's the only ones that report it, um, are having traumatic births and many more are having full on, you know, PTSD from their births and more midwives than ever before leaving. So yeah, I'd say it's, it's had its ups and downs um, over the years, but anytime we start to get a bit of change going, it feels like it's kind of snatched away a little bit, which is really frustrating, but I'm really hopeful that you know I do think people are more politicized when things get bad and right now with things like March with Midwives and you know there is I think a building awareness around and an anger a very necessary anger happening and mounting right now amongst both women and families and service users and birthing people and midwives and even doctors you know I've talked to I've worked with a few doctors um, doing vaccinations that's one of the things I did after I left to supplement my income and I met obstetricians who had left the NHS entirely, like consultant obstetricians who left because they couldn't deal with the amount of trauma they were witnessing either. So it's not only midwives. I mean, I, I have met doctors who've left for the exact same reasons I did. Yeah. So it is, it is at a crisis point, but I think the main thing is that we have to use this moment and really grasp this time 
to, to just fight like hell, basically, because if we don't right now, it will, midwifery will end as we know it in this country. Yeah. And that's a very scary thought. It is a scary thought because, well, as someone that comes from the US, you know, it, you'll know drawing comparisons between the maternity system in the UK and the maternity system in the US and the model that is used on, on both sides of the sea, it's, it's scary. You know, mid, midwifery led care is not the norm in the States. It's very much consultant, obstetrician led and very, very medicalized and hospitalized. Um, and without, without, you know, the, any of the fantastic stats around, you know, um, maternal deaths or, you know, um, people's uh, experiences of, of birth trauma, um, it's, it's, it is scary. I think it's really, really scary. We, we definitely need to protect our right to give birth supported by, by our midwives um, because birth is not, it's not a pathological process you know we don't need we don't need to be birthing with doctors and hospitals unless there is an issue um and um yeah I think uh, you're right it is it is very very worrying um so what what do you think is the it is the next step then what what can we do what do you think we could be doing to kind of affect change because it so obviously is needed well, the work I'm doing at the moment, so I'm working with White Ribbon Alliance. It uh, is a charity. Um, they're an advocacy charity for the reproductive and maternal health and rights of women and girls and all birthing people. Um, and what we're trying to do at the moment is uh, one of the big projects we're working on right now is called Safer Beginnings. It's a partnership with another charity called Best Beginnings. They, some people might know them as the makers of the Baby Buddy app. Um, so we're in a partnership with them at the moment, and we're working with several, like more than a dozen grassroots organizations that work directly with the people most affected by obstetric violence, FGM, and domestic violence. So the project I'm working on right now um, is all about obstetric violence, and I'm creating a resource for midwives specifically. So there's resources being created for service users so that they know their rights around obstetric violence, how they can, um, how they can access support in their communities um, that's specific to them and their cultural needs. Um, so that's really important piece of the puzzle. But I sat back and looked at the whole thing and said, right, well, what can I do for healthcare professionals? And one of the things we ended up deciding on was I said, you know, I, I want to create something for midwives that helps not that, that, you know, that some of them don't already know this, but to help bring the links together of how obstetric violence is not just about, you know, woman or birthing person versus midwife or the system. It's about how the system as a whole is violent to all of us who use it, who work in it, who have to access it. You know, it, all, everyone who's in the system is being abused. It's not individual people who are wanting to enact harm. You know, nobody goes into healthcare wanting to actively harm people. Um, or at least very few, hopefully. Um, but the, it's the system and the in the patriarchal and paternalistic way it has been set up from you know many, many years ago. This is not just a new thing. It was founded on very patriarchal and paternalistic medical model. And obstetric violence is is the root of the midwifery and the maternity care crisis because without obstetric violence, we wouldn't be having such traumatic births and having women being completely traumatized, needing psychological support, poor bonding with their babies, poor breastfeeding rates, you know, all of these things that we know happen as a result of traumatic births. Um, and obstetric reason is the reason why so many midwives are leaving. They're seeing completely 
that you know they're seeing births be completely derailed they're watching you know watching people be traumatized is traumatizing yeah. you know it's called vicarious trauma and I certainly felt that as well I mean no matter how how well you think I can, you can only do you know what you can do it's still traumatizing even if your practice is really good and you're kind to everyone you come into contact with you will inevitably see violence happening to other people and whether you want to put your head in the sand and deny that which some midwives do um or or recognize it and say hey even if it's not me always but even though I think all of us can improve our practice or our behaviors because it is hard when you're in that system to not get caught up in it and just to do what you have to do to survive I mean, I can look back at things that I've done that I you know I'm not necessarily like ashamed of, but the times where I wish I'd spoken up more or been even more forceful or, or talked to somebody who I thought spoke unkindly to somebody and called them out on it. You know, we can all only do so much, but it there is a sense of you just have to survive each shift. And obstetric violence is the is the reason why all of these things are happening. So I think that's really important to acknowledge. And that's why I feel like the, the work that you know people like yourself and, and many others are doing. And the work that I'm doing for White Ribbon Alliance is why I'm so passionate about it, because I think calling out obstetric violence and helping people to, to recognize it, have awareness of it and yeah. understand what it is, because a lot of people just think it's literally like a cesarean, a really, you know, really obvious things like a cesarean done without consent, that it was like really scary emergency crash section or, you know, maybe a vaginal exam done without consent. Um, things like that that seem a bit more obvious, but obstetric violence is like coercion as well. It's like using the sort of dead baby card to get people to agree to an induction. Obstetric violence is also, you know, having telling midwives that they have to do things a certain way or their pins on the line. It's threatening, you know, and, and that that's what I'm really passionate about is helping everyone and midwives, especially just because that's my background to see that we're all in this together. It is not an us versus them thing. We have to be fighting the system and and the model that it's built on not each other yeah and I, I think I think that that's quite a key thing being a calling calling it out and raising awareness of it because I think a lot of people both both birthing people and midwives don't necessarily realize I think when they're either committing or you know part of that obstetric violence or they are on the receiving end of it um as a birthing person, you might feel like you're, you've been traumatized by something, but you, I, I have plenty of people message me in my, in my DMs on Instagram, um, asking me, um, uh, this, this happened during my birth, you know, are they allowed to do that? Or, um, is that normal? Or, um, was that necessary? Because I feel like it wasn't, but I'm not sure. And I don't know if there was a valid reason, but I feel quite uncomfortable about what happened um and I think a lot of that is it is an education piece and making people aware that you know there it is so much more than those examples that you, you know those those kind of well well established well-known examples of obstetric violence um because yeah. I think it is it's it, I, I'd be surprised if there's anybody to be honest who hasn't experienced some of that coercion um or inappropriate language or or, or more of the physical stuff, like having your waters broken while you're having a vaginal exam. I mean, like there's probably, I know there's thousands of women who have who've experienced that. Um, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize what obstetric violence is. Um, so you're right, I think it is really, really important. Mm, exactly, like I know that um, 
um, a lot of people, and I was really glad to see this, that so many people got outraged by that show that aired on BBC recently, which I won't name, but you know, the one that was about the um, eccentric doctor, which was supposed to be funny. Yeah. Um, and I've hated that book from day one. So I've always flown a rage flag for that, <laughs> for that book and that show. Um, but I was actually really heartened to see how many people came out against it. Um, I mean, there were plenty of people who also just said, oh, it's hilarious and it's just a bit of fun, you know. It was deeply traumatic to watch, though. It really was, like, as a, both as a, as a woman and as somebody who has given birth in that system and as a midwife who has seen those things happen and as a healthcare professional who went through many of the same things depicted in that show, it was traumatic on many levels. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of questioning why I made myself watch all of it, but <laughs> I felt like it was important that because I was criticizing it so heavily that I felt it was important to, to have watched it all because at first, you know, people said, oh, you have to watch it all the way to the end and, and said, et cetera. But I was really glad to see how many people actually were recognizing that even the things that weren't necessarily physical um, assault or things that they would immediately be able to recognize as obstetric violence were still, they were uncomfortable with it. And if we can get to those people who were like, there's not something quite right about this. I don't know what it is. They might not know that it's obstetric violence, but they could tell that it wasn't right. You know, the little jokey comments he made or the way he spoke to people in the show. Um, I think that did get people's, you know, that pricked a lot of people's ears up when they went right. You know, yes, that happened to me as well. And it's one of those, you can either laugh at it or cry about it. But I think for a lot of people, they realize actually you shouldn't have to just laugh that stuff off. It's kind of like how we're addressing, you know, lad culture and the whole it's just banter culture. Yeah. Trying to turn people's trauma into jokes is no longer acceptable. And that includes birth trauma. Yeah, I, I do. It, my mind boggles how that show got aired in the first place, to be honest, because it's so wildly inappropriate. Um, but um, but I think I think it's. Um, it's indicative, I think, of, of how maternity care is viewed by society, to be honest, that being assaulted or being spoken to in an inappropriate way or being infantilized um, is, is normal. And, and we're ex, we're expect, we expect to be spoken to like that. And when it comes to other areas of healthcare, um, we probably wouldn't we probably wouldn't accept it as readily. It's almost as soon as you get pregnant, um, you lose all bodily autonomy and um, you're supposed to just shut up and be a good girl. Yes. Oh, I hate that phrase. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's a frustrating thing too, because it's so ingrained in our culture. It's not something you can just unlearn overnight. So for example, when I would be doing like an antenatal clinic and I love doing antenatal care, and, and I love trying to help people in that short window of time that I had to try to empower them to ask questions or to, to help them learn how to decline things, um, you know, without outright saying, I think you shouldn't, don't need that induction. Um, I could say, you know, you really do have the right to decline. And these are the things, you know, go through all the risks and benefits, et cetera. But so many people would say to me, I didn't know I had any choice or I didn't know I could say no. And for me, it's just, re you know, if we can reach one person at a time and help them realize you can say no, you don't have to do anything just because you're pregnant. It's, but it's culturally ingrained in us to not only in pregnancy, but in most healthcare situations, we are, we are, you know, culturally ingrained to think that doctors know what they're doing. They want what's best for us. They know what's best for us. And we've also become completely detached from our own bodies and what, what means what, you know, that's lack of education, lack of just 
awareness of ourselves, being in tune with ourselves. You know, there's so many factors, but when you don't feel comfortable with yourself and you don't feel able to say no to anything, of course, you're not going to feel empowered. And of course, you're just going to be quite scared and, and just say, yes, do tell me whatever I have to do to be safe. Especially if you view childbirth as something that is very dangerous and scary and painful and horrible. So when you combine those two things, like thinking that the doctors know best and that you have no choice in the matter and that your body is quite faulty. And then you've got all these horror stories coming at you from all sides. Of course, you're going to be terrified and want someone to just tell you what to do. So if we can get through to just individual people and say, you do have a choice, you do have a say in this and, and actually your, your intuition is important. That, that's, that's the work that, you know, you're doing. That's the work that a lot of other people are doing. And that's what I'm trying to do as well. I mean, I'm trying to do it on a bigger level now than I was when I was trying to do it individually with, with pregnant people at the time. But I'm hoping that, you know, I'm still doing that now in my advocacy work and in, in helping um, midwives as well to recognize obstetric violence when they see it and, and to recognize that they're also being abused. That's my big thing right now. Because yeah. so many, I think many are feeling that, but, you know, it used to be quite normal. And some people would um, almost brag about having done a shift without a break. It was almost like, how much can you flog yourself and put your needs dead last mm -hmm. before everyone else's? And it's kind of like motherhood, right? Like we are encouraged to put our children and our partners and our jobs and our friends and our social life and our exercise and all of those things above our own needs. And it's the same. That's why we're so more susceptible to it as women, because we've been taught from a very young age to make everyone else comfortable and happy. And that includes not only our family members, but doctors that we interact with and healthcare professionals. And we want everyone to get along. And it's really going to take a long time to undo that conditioning. It's, it is really deeply ingrained. You know, when I, when I teach my classes and I speak to my clients um, and I mention all of this, you know, how to advocate for yourself and what your rights are um, and, 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 how, and how to broach conversations um, so that you're coming not necessarily from a confrontational angle, but um, to kind of, but if it gets to that point, absolutely don't feel afraid to, 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 um, to be confrontational if it gets to that point. But, you know, there is a fear, I think, with a lot of pregnant people that if they piss off the midwife or they piss off the, the, the obstetrician or the consultant, um, that they're, they're going to not allow them not allow them to use the, the birth center, not allow them to have their home birth. That comes into the conversation quite a lot. They won't allow me to, um, because I'm going to be seen as that difficult, that difficult person, the difficult one. A lot, a lot of my clients label themselves as, oh, I'm the difficult one, you know? Mm. Um, be proud to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I say, it's not, it's not difficult. You're just better informed than most people. And you're questioning things that maybe most people don't question. That's not a bad thing. It just means that you are well informed of your rights and you know your options. That's that's only a good thing, really. Yeah. And dif being difficult is only viewed negatively. But if you think about it, being difficult means that you're making someone uncomfortable because they're having to do extra work or question themselves or or prove themselves. So, but that's what a healthcare professional should be doing. If you're questioning the evidence, they're the ones paid to know it, you know? The doctor or midwife should be able to tell you the risks and benefits of anything they are asking you to do. And if they don't, they need more training. They need to educate themselves more. 
and it, you know it shouldn't have to be on on us and on, on birthing people to go in there armed with all this knowledge you should be able to trust your healthcare provider to have up-to-date accurate knowledge and to give you the right information and to give you the choice to say no to it just as easily as you could say yes you know and give you this informed decision and and engage in that process with you as a two-way partnership but the fact is that it's not the way the system is right now. There's not enough time in these appointments. So it's really important that you do go in as, you know, informed and educated about everything you possibly can be and to be that difficult person because you have to be. No one else is going to do it except for you. You know, it's, it's your body, your baby, your birth. If no one else is going to stand up for you besides you, you know, that, that's what you got to do. And that's not being difficult. That's being sensible, really. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's a bit of a vicious, vicious circle, isn't it? Because, you know, the expectation shouldn't be on the birthing person to be doing all that research and, and finding all that evidence. It should be on the onus of the, the onus should be on the, the healthcare professional to know that stuff. But I think when you think about how hard pressed midwives and doctors are, in reality, how much time do they have to, to go and read up all of the latest research on, you know, the evidence? I mean, they are going to heavily lean on the NICE guidelines and ARCOG guidelines because those should be whatever is based on the most up-to-date evidence, although we know it's not because there are things in there which are based on studies from the 1940s or flawed studies that. Um, uh, back up guidelines rather uh, rather um, inconvenient for, for I think um, for the NHS, um, which means that we do end up having to do all that research. Um, what, what's never okay is for your consultant to tell you to go and Google <laughs> the research because that's a minefield and it really should be it really should be your obstetrician or your or your midwife giving you that research because to inter really really to find the, the best research and to interpret it is it is a minefield um yeah you know and to be honest it's it's even tricky as a healthcare professional I mean I remember as a student midwife saying something and I was I remember sitting on my break one day I think I must have been like second or third year and I had you know I was always carrying around like my midwifery journals with me I was always up to date on all the latest research and I said I was reading something out loud to the I think the midwife I was working with that day or maybe somebody else in the break room and, I was, and they were just like gosh you know so much about like all the latest stuff happening and I said well yeah you know it's really important to stay up to date and I was very like how could you not be you know you have to be and then when I qualified I remember about a year after I qualified saying to one of my friends that I trained with and I said do you remember that day in the break room when I said oh my gosh I'll always stay up to date on everything and I just laughed and I said I haven't had time to pick up a midwifery journal since I qualified I literally have no idea what's come out in the last year because I was too exhausted from my shifts to even want to think about looking at a midwifery journal on my day off mm. because I needed that time to decompress you know, I needed that time to just literally not think about it. And as sad as that is, I mean, me as someone who was going in there very passionate about staying up to date and wanting to know the latest evidence and being very critical of it. Uh, even I, at some point was like, I don't have time for this. I just got to go in there do my job, do the best I can that day and get home and not think about it because it's, it's too much when you're trying to, when you're in it, it is very hard to stay up to date. But the fact of the matter remains, it is part of our job. The sad part of it is there's not enough time given to people to do that. You know, we should have, midwives should have way more time to keep up to date and do this, their certified professional development. 
that is not just the mandatory training, which is, you know, all the focus is always on clinical skills and dealing with emergencies and interpreting CTGs. And that's all great and important, of course, but there's very little about emotional intelligence, how to look after yourself genuinely, not just this buzzword resilience and self-care nonsense, you know, how to actually, you know, implementing programs will actually help people's mental health and to not let their job take over their lives and enable flexible working and all those things that we know make a happier, healthier, more productive workforce. You know, that's why I said we have to attack this from both sides. You know, it's not just about physical safety. Um, it's about emotional safety. It's about mental well-being. It's, it's all of it. We cannot keep looking only at physical outcomes and whether people died or were severely injured. And if they weren't, that counts as a success mm-hmm. because nobody's there five weeks later, five months later, five years later, picking up the pieces. They don't see the person who's got the traumatic birth, who has PTSD, who maybe won't have any more children after that one, even though they wanted three. You know, they don't see the relationships that it break down as a result, either from a traumatic birth or from, you know, midwives. Many of their marriages break up because their mental health is destroyed. They lose their career, their ability to earn money. Um, I've seen it destroy people's lives as well. So it's it's not just about physical safety. Um, we've got to really start looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. And that needs change from the top down. It really yeah. does. And that and that's why, you know, circling back to right at the beginning when you said it's it's a political, it is political. You know, the whole system is political. Its roots are in politics, you know. Um, and it how can how can healthcare not not be political? I mean, without without me getting political, <laughs> um, you know, it is, it, I mean, it is, it is really important. And the, the two are so interlinked, you can't, you can't really untangle those two, those two things. Um so. So what, what's your, your next, after, uh, alongside your White Ribbon Alliance um, projects that you're doing, what's, the, what's your next big thing? What's your next focus going to be, do you think? Have you got any more books lined up? Or? Well, I may be writing something, yes. <laughs> um, still not anything I can talk about yet, but yeah, I, I do still write. I'm very much, um, you know, going back into my writing career very heavily. So that's really, really nice. And it's nice to get that kind of creative side of me back. Um, so yeah, this this project isn't much to do with midwifery, but it is quite political. So, and it does touch on, um, you know, birth and being a woman and, and things like that so yeah related but not necessarily about birth or midwifery specifically mm-hmm. um so yeah that's exciting i'm working on that and yeah i'm just continuing to stir the pot whenever i can and <laughs> and uh yeah i enjoy being political and you know i'm very involved in feminist spaces i'm very heavily involved in reproductive rights and care um one Which of our political right now yes exactly um Clearly, what's happened in the US recently with Roe v. Wade being overturned, um, you know, I care very deeply about that and abortion rights in the UK under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many MPs who have voted to reduce the time limit, the gestation at which you can have a termination, yep. others who have voted for measures that would severely curtail it. Mm-hmm. So we can't be complacent on that issue either. And that's why it's not just birth, it's all of our reproductive rights and reproductive capabilities that are at threat here because that that is one of the biggest ways that that women are still oppressed um anyone with a reproductive system is at risk of these things and it seems like whenever something happens in one country especially if it happens in america it kind of emboldens people in other places so for example i know that bpass and msi and some of the other major abortion providers 
have already reported that the number of protesters and how aggressive they're being has already increased massively um, since Roe v. Wade. So we really have to keep our eyes open to that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Our rights, our reproductive rights are already restricted in the UK. I think this is one thing people don't realise. If you, if you want to have an abortion, you still need to go to a doctor. You still need to get it signed off. You can't, it's not, it, it's still controlled. You know, yeah. you need approval. Um, and there's still women who are saying, have, have, have you had approval from your husband? You know, yeah. your partner to have that abortion. We don't, ha- we don't have complete freedom of, 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 of reproductive rights in the UK. Um, yeah, right. Ireland doesn't. Yeah. No. Well, that's the weird thing is that since abortion was, I only actually found this part out very recently. Um, I started doing some lecturing actually at universities to midwifery students on abortion and reproductive rights. And it was while I was doing the research for that, um, I realized that um, Northern Ireland, because they only very recently got any abortion rights, um, but the way that they wrote the law there is actually that you don't have to give any reason. So it's actually decriminalized in Northern Ireland up to 12 weeks. And it's only after 12 weeks that they then have to get the permission of two doctors and so on. And they have to come to England, Wales or Scotland to have it done as well. So they just they can have it. You know, there's, you don't have to give a reason or get a doctor to sign off on it, but only up to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the rest of the UK, no matter what gestation you are, you could be like six weeks pregnant and just found out you still have to get a reason and you have to get two doctors to sign it off to say you can. And I have seen people be denied abortions. It doesn't happen very often, but occasionally if someone doesn't give the right reason, um, they will be denied. And I have seen that happen. It's crazy. Yeah. I think we're living through very difficult, very worrying times, Mm. um, unfortunately. I know it still sounds a bit doom and gloom, but but I guess the more people that... You know, realize, and the the more we shine a light on on all of this, the more change will happen. Because I think a lot of people go into birth with their eyes closed; they don't realize the gravity of the issues in maternity care, and they go in completely unprepared, and then leave out the other end with a baby completely traumatized. So I think it is what you're doing is really, really important. Um, I think it's fantastic that you're doing it on such a larger scale now as well. Um, mm. because I think the more people we reach, um, hopefully the, le- the fewer, the less people will, will end up with, with trauma, whether that is people within the maternity system working within it or people passing through the maternity system. Um, because it's, it's too and many. Perhaps something a little bit more... Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say something a little bit more positive, maybe on a more positive note as we come towards the end, is to say that the reason why I think the you know birth activists like yourself and like me and like so many others, the ones who are the most vocal and do make it political are the ones who've had good births usually. So often it will be the people because we or they've seen even if they've maybe not had one themselves, they've seen and witnessed birth when it's good. Mm -hmm. birth when it's respected when it's safe when it's empowering when it's life-changing when it's like this completely soul-affirming thing you know and that doesn't have to be a natural home birth under the stars that can be that can be anywhere but when you've once you've seen that or you've experienced that or you've talked to someone who's had that experience it's very hard to then see the reverse of that happening to so many people and like destroying them when you know it can be 
such an amazing, empowering, fantastic experience that you'll remember forever. And I was lucky enough to have one of those experiences. And I think that's having seen, you know, and experienced both sides of the coin really makes you more passionate, um, makes you so passionate about it. I mean, also there's people who have only had bad, you know, birth experiences and are so equally as passionate. But I think, you know, having either seen or experienced both of those things and knowing how night and day they are and how they can impact on your life forever is why we keep doing this work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which is why you changed careers and went through doulering and midwifery and why I changed my career and ended up doing this. It is exactly that. It's that journey going from night to day and seeing what people could be having with, you know, some education and some work and changing the system. Um, it, it absolutely is achievable. And you're right. It's not it's not about having that hippie-ish giving birth in a field, you know, with with no midwife there. It's about feeling empowered and being being respected um, and feeling like you have control of your birth, regardless, you know, whichever path that takes. Um, and that means that we need change in the system and we need parents to be educated. So, yeah. Exactly. It's not just, you know, hippie home births, you know, sort of flowing skirts, patchouli scented, everything, you know, not everybody who has home births is into that. I mean, cool yeah. if you're into that, but I'm definitely not, you know, I'm, I'm not a very, um, I mean, I'm a little bit hippie, but not very much. I'm mostly, I was just jokingly referring to myself as a witch, you know, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I was at the time I had my home birth, I was not really like that hippie. I, and I was jokingly called it my unhippie home birth because I'm very much a favor of, you know, modern medicine and think it's great and came from the States where it was all quite medicalized. And, um, you know, I was quite happy to accept medical care if I needed it, but I just felt, I just thought when I was pregnant with my second, I thought I knew I went a home birth because I just wanted to be in control that time, not of the birth, but of my environment. Because yeah. for me, it was the environment of my first birth and walking into that hospital scared and, you know, in pain. And I'll never forget that the midwife looked at me and because I was, I had an OP baby and I was having very frequent contractions and she, you know, we were trying to walk to the room and I was having to stop. And when we had to stop again, like literally a minute after I just had one, she just kind of turned around and rolled her eyes and just went, oh, come on then. It can't be that bad. Um, and, you know, I just never forget that. And, and I never forget the midwife um, when I was in the birth pool saying, you know, I said, oh, I, I can't do this anymore. And instead of saying, yes, you can. And like getting down and looking me in the eye and being like, yes, you can. And give me a bit of support. She just said, well, you know, if you can't hack it in the pool, you can have some drugs and get out. You know, <laughs> it was very just nonchalant. And, and that will always stay with me. And I, always, I took that with me into my training and said, I will never do that to somebody. I will always be there and, and tell people that I believe in them and they can do it. And, and just hold their hand to come what may. And if that's all you can do for somebody and make them feel respected and heard and that you were kind to them, then that alone will change so many people's experiences, regardless of how it ends. That's what most people want is just to feel safe and respected and heard. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. One of the, one of the, one of the, uh, the pieces of feedback that I got um, from, from somebody, and I, it, it sticks in my head, and I don't know why, but uh, one woman said that um, she'll never forget the midwife. I think she was a student midwife who was giving her a foot rub when she was in, in the thotomy because it, it made her cry because it, it, it just made her feel so, so good. That, that's, that's such a small thing. And that's probably going to be something that sticks with that woman forever. You know, yeah. it's, that, it's that empathy. It's empathetic care, isn't it? Which is so important. Um, 
but yeah we just need to chip away I think and 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 hopefully we can each of us in our own little ways I think will make make a big a big change a big positive change um I do believe that I do believe because I, I don't believe that women will go down without a fight. You know, we won't say, oh, that's it. It's broken. There's nothing that can be done. Let's just all have elective cesareans and do whatever the, the men tell us to do. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, um, you know, there's there are negative things and there's a crisis. Yes. And I, but I do still have hope that we will galvanize when when and when we have to, we will turn it around and yeah. then it will be ours and it will feel even better that, it, that it, you know, the fight that it took to get there will feel even more fantastic when we get there yeah absolutely oh so where can people find you if they want to find you online and see uh, i'm mostly on instagram at amity.read um i do have a facebook page as well called amity read writer i'm not on twitter very vociferously not on twitter <laughs> i don't blame you <laughs> i tried it many many years ago for i was on it for quite a long time and quite heavily into it but no no more so i'm not i do have an account but if you message me there i won't see it so yeah i'm not there <laughs> Um, and I have a website that's just amityread.co.uk. So, fantastic. Yeah. And um, if anyone wants to look at the White Ribbon Alliance website, that's uh, whiteribbonalliance.org.uk. So you can go and have a look at the different campaigns. And of course, you can find my book, which is called Overdue, on Amazon and on Pinter and Martin website, and pretty much any online you know retailer that sells books. Fantastic. Thank you so much for today, Amity. It's been really, really lovely Thank talking you. to you. It's been fantastic. I like having a, a good old put in the world to rights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Better Birth Podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only. You should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth. The opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth Podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung.